Right, y'all, let's talk about human extinction. Yeah. yeah. Excuse me. Biotic annihilation. <laughs> Biotic annihilation is my preferred... The preferred nomenclature. So, we're going to start from the very beginning here with the question, what is science? What is science? How do you do, how does one do science? With a complicated science machine and a lab coat. <laughs> yes, complicated science machine and a lab coat. Yeah. Experiments, right. So we have a hypothesis, then we test the experiment. We test the experiment over and over again until we come up with certainty, right? And the methods we use to do these tests are agreed upon by other groups of scientists in a, in a broader field, right? And we come up with a broader paradigm for understanding how the world operates and how science operates, right? This is what... Thomas Kuhn would call normal science. Normal science is where everyone uses agreed upon methods to arrive at low level or conclusions that have a low level of uncertainty and whose political stakes are relatively low. So if you're like a scientist and you're studying like, I don't know, the glucose production of some, like, water mammal or some shit. Like, the implications of that, not so hot, right? Or not so important. They have longer-term importance for, like, curing diseases, things like that. But no one's, gonna be, no one's going to really inquire that much. There's not an immediate import to that other than the further discoveries that are then useful. But not all science operates this way. Instead, some science is what was called post-normal science. So post-normal science is when we have questions and see phenomena in the world that our current methods don't have an answer to. And that the potential answers we do come upon are not certain. High levels of uncertainty. And often, the reason we study these questions is because their political consequences are enormous. So, it's important, and this distinction will come up here in a while, is that climate deniers operate in a frame of normal science. They think that you need certainty in order to have a conclusion, that the methods have to be agreed upon in advance. Whereas climate scientists operate in a post-normal world. So does, are we certain that the climate is warming or not? We're relatively certain. Okay, are we certain of its trajectory? That's a medium level to high level of uncertainty. But if we underestimate their trajectory then humans just yeeted themselves. R.I.P. our species, right? So there's high stakes, which is why it operates in a different paradigm, and we'll see how this breaks down here in a second. So here we start with the things we're certain about. What's this? What's the greenhouse effect? It's like the biology classes I never went to in high school. 
this that had to reteach myself when I discovered that the environment was more than loving rocks. So right, the greenhouse effect. So energy from the sun is sended, sent towards the earth. Some of it is reflected by the outer earth layers, like the ozone layer, right, reflects some of the sun rays and some of the UV rays. Some of it gets into the earth that contributes to the heating of the earth. Some of it is trapped by things like clouds. And some of it inevitably escapes. Right? The problem, of course, is that greenhouse gases trap more of it, warming the earth. This is very, like, very elementary. We've known this since at the since the mid-19th century or thereabouts. We've known the greenhouse effect. It's, they tell me it's basic physics. I don't know anything about basic physics, but I take them at face value. So here's a breakdown of all the greenhouse gases. So the one thing I'll say about this, because, you know, is that we tend to focus on carbon dioxide, right, CO2, because... We pollute the moat. We pollute CO2 a ton, right? A lot of it. But methane and nitrous oxide, so for all of you who go to raves, you're contributing to global warming, uh, are, and also sulfur dioxide, I'm pretty sure as well, are all stronger in orders of magnitude than carbon dioxide. So methane when released into the atmosphere, amplifies the warming effects of GHGs 10 times over, which will become which is important and explains a lot about things like natural gas and why natural gas extraction is so bad for climate change, despite the fact that natural gas itself cleans burn burns cleaner than coal. Is everyone with me? There's greenhouse gases. Some are more or less powerful. We, have, we produce more or less of them. Okay. So how do we know the Earth is warming? This the next question. <laughs> so in order to, you might be like, you know, so we measure, we measure the atmosphere over millennia. And I'm just like, it's hot outside. So the answer is both, actually. And so I don't mean to, I mean to introduce here the distinction between weather, right? So the effects of like it's raining outside or there was a snowstorm in early June last year in parts of the United States and this year as well. There was still snow in Colorado in June this year, right? That's like climate's changing. That's abnormal, right? But that's just weather. And we need to prove with scientific measurements over millennia for various reasons we'll get into. But simultaneously, and this is where the whole post-normal thing becomes important, that's not precisely true what scientists are doing when they say they can prove that climate is warming. And we'll get to that. Okay, but just know that even though someone might be quick to be like weather and climate are distinct, there's a point in the last 60 years where that did not necessarily become true.
So what are the conditions that they need to do prove in order to show that the Earth is warming? So we need to prove there's high levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, which is something we measure, of course, in parts per million. That there's the there's temperatures currently, and then there's the historical temperature record. So something that we is worth noting is that we did not start keeping temperature records until the 1850s. Temperature records were not recorded since before the 1850s. So we have to do some sciencey stuff, which I'm sure James could explain to you way, way better than I could. Um, in order to show this kind of high levels of CO2, increased temperatures, so on and so forth, right? So, enter paleoclimatology and climatology. So paleoclimatology is exactly what it sounds like. It's like the past climate, right? Studying past climates. So you might be asking yourself, okay, we don't have temperature records from like a thousand years ago. We have them beginning in the 1850s. So how then do we understand temperatures? The answer is proxies, right? So proxies are things that we can study and measure to get an approximation through other means of the temperature and the CO2 in the air. These things include ice cores, which can, which when frozen contain, we can melt them down and like see how much CO2 they contain through some uh, fancy mathematical formulas. And there's also, we can tell because of tree rings, right? So one of the most famous paleoclimatologists is this guy, Keith Bifra. And Keith Bifra is famous for being like the number one expert in ancient tree rings. So like cutting open trees that were frozen in ice in the Arctic and measuring the width of the tree ring, right? And we know that a tree ring, that the rings on a tree grow wider or more narrow depending on whether it was warmer or colder out. And that there are particular species of pine in the Arctic that were particularly sensitive to temperature changes. So you get this species of pine tree and you get like old frozen ones, right? And then you cut it open and then you can kind of see the temperature. And they have it all worked out to specific mathematical formulas. And then you take that and you compare it to the ice core with the amount of CO2 in the air that was frozen at about the same time as the tree rings, right? Because you can date through carbon and other means like in the carbon and D in the tree, right? carbon dating and other kinds of dating. And then you can approximate the relationships between those two things. We also know historically that there are times when the earth was warmer. 
So the best example of this is the climate is the late medieval warm period or what's called the medieval climate optimum. So we know that between the years of 950 and 1250 CE approximately, so during the medieval period, humans were able to, human populations were able to increase and we were able to grow more food like archeology span and recorded history tells us these things, right? There was a greater range of specific species of animals and that we were able to have more humans and grow more food because it was warmer in places like China and Europe, right? So we can trace those in relationship to the numbers and these other proxy markers. Now, there's some difficulty here because it also 1250 corresponds with the arrival of something else in both Asia and the United States, uh, known as the Black Death, right? When population numbers dropped off by like a third or more, but, you know, they figured it out. So we then graphed these measurements onto model graphs, onto these at the end in the last 60 years, because the last 60 years, for some reason, things aren't as clear in the proxy data. And you get this. This is what's known as the hockey stick graph. This was published initially in 1998 by Penn State scientist Michael Mann. He's a distinguished professor. And this was a reconstruction of temperatures over the past 2,000 years. And here, this version maps the medieval warm period as well as the Little Ice Age. The Little Ice Age was a period in Europe, we know, where for about 150 years, there was more freezing, the temperature was colder, people could like ice skate on like the English Channel, like that kind of thing. Um, so, we know and can trace these. And so I want to highlight here the uncertainty and how it's not a very clear, it's not a very clear like map, right? Notice that there's different lines with different proxies that show different types of temperatures. But we can see if we combine them all with a fair amount of statistical certainty that there have been ups and downs, and that here, the temperature shooting threes are right? That's how we get climate change. That's how we prove it. And that's how we prove that it's human-caused, because between the years of 1800 and 2000, last 200 years, has been like mo the majority of human carbon pollution. There's one that here's a kind of um, example, though, of this, what I'm talking about, the uncertainty, is that at the end, this black line is a grafting on of surface temperatures. And that that grafting is highly political. That climate deniers like jump on this shit, right? And they're like, yo, you're grafting this stuff on? And they're not even grafting on all temperatures. So for example, there's a myriad of journal articles published about the choices to include and exclude particular temperature measurements of buoys in the Arctic that show differing measures, where there was one buoy that had radically different temperature measurements than the other 12. 
And so they, like, came up with some reasons to exclude it, and they did. But if you're like, yo, the Earth isn't warming, you're like, the first thing you do is you're like, this buoy. This is my buoy. This is my best friend. I'm going to write blog post after blog post about this motherfucker. And then we're going to talk about how the Earth isn't warming. Right? So... Last note here is that temperature is measured compared to pre-industrial levels in degrees Celsius. So anytime I use any kind of increasing temperature measurement, it's degrees past pre-industrial levels, which is measured around the year, you know, 1750, 1800, okay? But notice Earth is warming. So... Now we get to kind of the nitty-gritty, things you need to know in order to debate climate. You need to know about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. It's a UN environmental program sponsored panel that just happens. It's like a bunch of scientists that are just impaneled constantly that review the published literature on climate change and they determine the veracity and the likelihood and how believable the different published studies are, how reliable they are, and then they compile a kind of meta-analysis. So they say, from all of these studies together, we think this is the direction the temperature is heading. So it was founded in the early 1980s. There have been... Five assessments to date. They're currently on their sixth assessment report or cycle. And they produce a bunch of other reports along the way. So we'll talk about the most recent one here for a second. But the thing you need to know is that if you're going to debate it on the AFRNEG, that all of your criticisms of climate change and all of the discussions need to be, are often kind of circulate around who believes the IPCC is too liberal or influenced by those, you know, communist scientists who, like, believe in reality or those who think that it's more conservative than it needs to be because it's a process of negotiating and that the members of the IPCC have a vested interest in appealing to governments that don't want to take radical changes necessary. Does this make sense to everyone? You need to think about the IPCC because you're at, on the AFRNAG, your criticisms are largely going to center around that. So in 2018, they re released a special report with the title, Global Warming of 1.5 Degrees Celsius, an IPCC Special Report on the Impacts of Global Warming of 1.5 Degrees Celsius Above Pre-Industrial Levels and Related Global Greenhouse Gas Emission Pathways in the Context of Strengthening the Global Response to the Threat of Climate Change, Sustainable Development, and Efforts to Eradicate Poverty. Or the 2018 IPCC Report, as I will refer to it and the literature refers to it as well no one uses this entire title i don't know why it's this title but here you go so this most recent report you can go read it 
on the internet if you want. But here's the TLDR. We're currently experiencing the consequences of one degree Celsius warming over pre-industrial levels. Some of the evidence they provide includes the increased intensity of storms. So in the United States, we've had some really big hurricanes in the last like five, six years, right? Even like going back a decade, beginning with Hurricane Katrina. A lot of these hurricanes, they argue, are amplified. Their intensity is amplified by a warming climate. But there's also super typhoons in the Pacific that we don't hear about. So like entire islands are just kind of getting wiped off the map in the Pacific. Very akin or worse to what happened to Puerto Rico. Because the climate is warming, right? There's increased heat death. So thousands of people a year are dying because they bake to death. And we'll talk about how we get there, how that works, why that's important here in a little bit. There's increased number of climate refugees. So they argue that a lot of people migrating right now, and this is most evident in the migrations in India and um, some of the kind of some of the you know East Asian nations, those larger migrations are the result of climate change. And also the city of Chennai in India is running out of water. It's like the third largest city in India. No water. They're running out of it. So they argue that we need to quickly decarbonize the economy in order to avoid 1.5 to 2 degree warming by 2100. And that there's a 66% chance we can avoid the 2 degree mark by 2100. So notice that two degrees of, of warming is Holocene levels of warming 10,000 years ago in that it would be catastrophic to large human populations. So 10,000 years ago, humans were anatomically evolved, but we did not have large populations. We didn't have civilizations, right? Longest human civilization is probably an accomplishment that happened about 8,000 years ago. So as the earth started cooling off a little bit, and so we could do like grow crops, there's other factors involved, like agriculture, which is probably our biggest mistake, um, and other sorts of things. So other kind of evolutions in human society. So they argue that we need to decarbonize significantly by the 2030s in order to avoid two degree Climate change by 2100. Note that's by 2100. That doesn't mean that the trajectory won't keep going. It's just like most everyone will be alive today, will be dead. Not everyone, right? So some, there's like babies and shit that will be alive in 2100. But most everyone who can read and is reading this report will be dead by 2100. So that's what they're most concerned about because it's for policymakers, right? Big problem. Michael Mann, the guy, the guy who came up with the hockey stick graph, and others 
argue that the IPCC is conservative, that it fundamentally misjudges our trajectory in terms of climate change, that they underestimate a number of things, which I'll talk about here in a second. So what does the IPCC get wrong? And what are, do you, as an affirmative, need to argue is going to happen? So you need to argue that we're going to pass thresholds and tipping points. And so, by the way, this entire, this is all available on the Discord already. So if you're, like, copying down the slides, please download it. So there's a number of things that could lead to runaway warming because there will be an amplification of the amount of greenhouse gases polluted, like sent into the atmosphere because we pass certain temperature thresholds. So first of these, and the most the worrisome of them, is that as permafrost melts it releases greenhouse gases, most notably methane. So when permafrost developed, a bunch of dead animals and other stuff, and potentially even live animals, I don't know, some biotic matter got trapped and has been slowly decomposing. It's not like it's been not decomposing. It's just been doing that much more slowly. So that decomposition has led to the buildup of a ton of methane, in carbon gases trapped in the permafrost. And when it melts, it gets released in the atmosphere. So if we pass, surpass the temperature threshold by which we melt the permafrost, then the, our assumption about how much we can still pollute and avoid these thresholds is we've massively underestimated the or overestimated the amount we can pollute, right? Um, also, as the temperature warms, there will be increased amount of water vapor in the air, and water vapor acts to trap heat. So it will amplify the warming of the atmosphere. Um, ice caps reflect sunlight. As the ice caps melt, we lose our ability to reflect some of that heat out of the outside of the atmosphere. And the last one, and this is like the most, this is a big misunderestimation on the part of the IPCC, and one that we're just now studying and coming to grips with, is that as storms hit forests and as we deforest further ourselves we lose those forests as what are car called carbon sinks so forests like suck up carbon right plant a tree save the atmosphere well you know if half the amazon is gone in the next like decade then we've lost that equal amount of carbon we could pollute and avoid the thresholds so there's an argument the argument goes like this 
once we pass these thresholds, not only will we continue to, not only will the Earth warm, will warm in an accelerating rate that will trigger further thresholds. This will lead to what's called runaway warming. Runaway warming is where we all die because of various things that we can't adapt to. So this is, but these things are high uncertainty, right? They're what Dick Cheney would call known unknowns, right? They're the things that we know about, but we don't, but we know we don't know because we don't know at what point we will trigger these. So that's a high uncertainty. So you see, it's not like we prove climate change is a thing through science and therefore it's a certainty. It's that there's levels of uncertainty involved in how seriously we need to take the problem. They also underestimate the part of the fact that we've already baked in at least two degrees of warming. Just like two degree warming threshold, nah. I plan on living in a world in which we pass two degrees, two degree warming threshold and I will, yeah, I'm here for a good time, not a long time. So just consider that we've crossed the 4.415 parts per million CO2 threshold, which is what a lot of people say is well past the, what will bake in the two degree warming. We passed that late last year, I want to say. And that also the report undersells the need to achieve zero carbon because of this. So there's this thing called the Paris Agreement, right? We know it's a problem. Well, by the we, I mean the royal we. I know it's a problem. Maybe not the federal government since we're withdrawing from the Paris pathway or the Paris Agreement. But the Paris Agreement was a voluntary treaty where you set your own goals for carbon reduction. So the countries that signed it said, we will reduce our carbon output by this much, by the, you know, within a certain amount of time. I think it's by 2050, and then we have to renegotiate. And its goal was to limit warming to 1.5 degrees by 2100. As you can see, not going to happen. But it did do some good things, like it had technology transfers, to LDCs in order to provide them with renewable energy. And it called upon the historically polluting countries like the UK and the United States to take a bigger role because we're responsible for the vast majority of the pollution that's already baked into the atmosphere. Because even though maybe, say, China or India pollute more right now, that's a new phenomenon because they're industrializing countries. Whereas we've been an industrialized country, arguably for at least a hundred years at this point. So there's several studies. There's an MIT study, a Schroeder Investment Group study that argue that if we continue on the Paris pathway, we will see five degree warming. So if all things stay as they are now, the kind of middle road is five degrees. 
the there's studies that say as arguably as eight degrees warming if we don't take action. Eight degrees, uh, yeah. So here's the important part, right? Because it's not like everything stays the same. The carbon pollution is the result of human pollution as a result of technological change, right? So arguably, technology could change so we could adapt to these conditions. Similarly, even the, the last forms of climate change didn't annihilate all biotic life. The difference is, at least if you're the affirmative, you want to argue, that it will be faster than the last changes, than the last extinctions, that we are going to hit runaway warming. Because if warming is slow, then we can arguably move people around, we can have new technologies, we can build like storm walls and flood walls, we can come up with new ways of doing agriculture. But there was a World Bank study from a little while ago that argued that four degrees of warming is unadaptable. That there's no way in which human civilization can adapt to four degrees warming and we're on a trajectory for at least five in the median estimates. But that three degrees might even still be an existential threat. So there's two reasons why if you're affirmative you want to argue that we cannot necessarily adapt. So in order to adapt, we need functioning political and economic systems. We need the money to adapt, to build new infrastructure, to move entire populations. So like we would need to move the entire population of Florida to South Dakota, basically. And the entire population of the eastern seaboard further inland. Same with the western seaboard, right? But the Storms are going to be so bad that our economic and political capacities to adapt will be, will collapse. Second is that the speed of warming is what really matters. Is that we can adapt to two-tenths of a degree increase in temperature per decade over the next 100 years. And, which would put us on roughly the two-degree time frame and adapt, arguably. Because we could, like, you know, as one, because you could move a city at a time inland, right? You could build the storm walls as seas slowly rose. But if we're on the three or plus degree trajectory, then it will change and it will alter way too quick. It will happen way too quickly. So in concrete terms... The magnitude is like FEMA runs out of money. They're already out of money, but FEMA will run out of money further, which means we can't help people move after storms. Furthermore, the political system won't be strong enough to convince people to move inland, right? So they're still building, for instance, luxury condos in South Beach. 
those luxury condos will be underwater sometime in the next 50 years. But we're still building them because we don't have the political capacity to convince them not to build there. And then also the time frame, right? It's like you can't just up and move whole populations over a short period of time. So when you're affirmative, you need to argue that it's going to happen so fast if we don't solve the problem, if we don't decarbonize, that it will cause us to go extinct or to have negative impacts. So we're almost to the good part here. The who pollutes, right? So United States, China, India, Russia. So the thing I want to point out here, that's the important part, is that there is a debate in the literature about the importance of this chart. So on the one hand, it looks like China is responsible for way more warming, for way more carbon emissions. That's objectively true. What's also objectively true is they have an extra billion people. So an extra billion people only pollute, pollute way less per capita than Americans. So there's some literature, there's some debate about this that suggests that the United States bears the extra burden and responsibility because of our per capita carbon pollution and GHG emissions. There's some other literature that says, well, in concrete policy terms, it doesn't matter if the United States decreases their carbon emissions because China will still pollute it. Right? Um, it's also true, and this is like the latest, over the last year or so, the over the last year or so, the literature seems to show that China is actually decarbonizing at a faster rate than the United States. So the U.S. is, so China's put a bunch of resources into making sure that their continued growth is mostly in renewable energy sources, so like solar panels and things like that. So they're doing a much better job than we are at making sure that they're in the future that they decarbonize their economy. So to some extent, there is, um, is some argument for the United States taking action being key, right? Because the classical argument in climate change debates is, of course, well, the U.S. isn't key because we don't pollute the most of any other country, so even if we do the plan, it won't work. Apart from considerations of U.S. leadership and signaling, uniqueness points for the AF in terms of China or in terms of China. China will decrease and decarbonize before we do. Then, also important for us is by sector, right? So agriculture, so you're going to hear the classic joke um, that a certain percentage of 
fossil fuel production and GHG emission is car is car farts, right? Literally the methane produced in animal agriculture. True. True argument. But you see that electricity and transportation in industry combined make up the vast majority and that the topic itself deals primarily with this 28% of electricity production. It could arguably affect a certain amount of the transportation sector because you can argue that electric cars are coming now, they're increasingly popular, so on and so forth. It can also affect industry if you encourage them to move to other forms of energy production because it's unclear what that industry portion is other than like escaped methane in chemical production, things along that, those lines. So last chart, just really quickly, want to show that fossil fuel combustion, the majority of it produces CO2 is our 76% of our greenhouse gas emissions. So an F would arguably, if you can prove solvency, which is a big if we'll talk about in a little while, and could arguably take a massive chunk out of CO2 emissions with the United States. You could argue that you solve. I'm not sure that's the case. But if we would have gotten another resolution, I would argue it would be much more likely you could solve climate change. But something you'll learn, for those of you who are new, is that communicate is that or rather that debaters love to complain about the resolution more than perhaps any other thing. So um, that's my complaint. So now, well, okay, so I was planning a quick break uh, because this goes on for two hours. It's a long time to sit here. So I think now might be a time to take like five to ten minute break and come back and then we'll finish it up with impacts and then I'll teach you how to deny climate change exists and then we will have food and go get some dinner oh yeah all right so welcome back we've talked a little bit about the science behind climate change and the uncertainty involved, which you need to exploit if you're affirmative, right? The we the known unknowns, if you will, that might push us over the brink. So why then does it matter? The impacts. So I want to preface this by saying I'll break this up into I'll break this up into three sections. So first is how do we get to human extinction? Second, how do we get to civilization collapse? And act that are other reasons that might not cause us to go extinct, but might collapse our 
civilization, and does that really matter, the distinction between the two? And then some other impacts. One of the things I didn't include here is diseases. So basically, once warming melts the permafrost, there's going to be a bunch of new diseases that come back that we don't know about that could cause us to go extinct. I don't find those impacts particularly persuasive, um, so we're not going to talk about them. Like, I think that these are the best impacts. So four ways we get to human extinction. Biotic annihilation, or biodiversity collapse. Nuclear war, because of water wars and other forms of instability. Heat death, which we'll talk about. Heat death is like a thing you should be concerned about. And then climate fascism. So biotic annihilation, a.k.a. biodiversity collapse. This is like the big one. As we change the climate and as we change the kind of material structures of the earth, we kill other species. We are in the middle of what some scientists are calling the sixth great extinction. It's the first one that's as a result of human impacts on our ecosystem. So here's the deal. Climate change or no, we'll probably, we will have the sixth great species extinction. So we're cutting down the rainforests and forests more generally. So like think in Brazil, right? Bolsonaro plans to basically turn the Amazon into a parking lot for cows, like to graze cows and grow crops and to mine. He plans to get rid of roughly half of the remaining Amazon over the next 20 years. Climate change has nothing to do with that. That's just a thing. It might be the result of climate fascism. They'll leave that up to you to decide. We'll talk about that. There's we're destroying the oceans. Think like plastics in the oceans are disrupting the genetic content, and the genetic makeup of fish and destroying fish populations alongside like overfishing and all of those impacts. Then there's also ocean bleaching and acidification, which isn't just climate change, but also has to do with like holes in the ozone layer and other things. Then we're also poisoning the food chain. Right? Industrial runoff isn't just bad for humans, it's bad for other things as well. And all of this changes the genetic makeup of animals and destroys their habitats. And they're unable, as well as, you know, not just animals, but all biotic life, so plants as well, down, all the way down to plankton. All of these changes are causing extinction, but it's also causing adaptation. So, like, it may be true that we're driving tons of species extinct, but absent climate change, there would likely be some degree of adaptation so that not everything would go extinct. We wouldn't reach the level of biotic annihilation. But with climate change, it amplifies all of these things, and it changes them quicker, right? So it has these add-on effects and so the combination of these quick changes 
as a product of industrial society, human society, as well as climate change, makes the adaptation impossible for most organisms. So we're seeing millions of species go extinct over the next 50 to 100 years. It's also true that each of the past five mass extinctions are related to the amount of CO2 or are traced to the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. When dinosaurs went extinct, lots of CO2 in the atmosphere. All of the, the, right, I think it's like the Jurassic extinction, the Permian extinction, all of these were all related to CO2 in the atmosphere. This might have been because of volcanoes, could have been for other reasons, but regardless, these two things are correlated and they disrupt the food chain. When the food chain collapses, we get mass species and biodiversity loss. Humans cannot survive without biodiversity. Biodiversity is what allows us to grow crops in order to eat. Biodiversity is what allows us to prevent and have habitats in stable places to live, right? Without biodiversity, large portions of human societies will not have any food to eat. Large portions of human societies will be in areas that undergo desertification or desertification. Yeah. Not becoming deserts, but becoming deserts. So it's unfortunate, I know. So there's great evidence that says that this biodiversity loss will cause human extinction. This isn't just the biodiversity loss, you know, mid-90s biodiversity equals extinction cards that we love that have been debate's greatest hits, but cards from the last two to three years that argue that, they will, that, they, that we will have a biotic annihilation and human extinction. So a report, if you're looking for some kind of citation, um, I closed that file. So if you want the specifics, like just not a laundry list card, because I assume you can find laundry list climate equals extinction cards by yourself. Um, there's a good report, a 2019 report by Diaz, Setley, and Brandizio. Um, that's... The Summary for Policymakers, the Global Assessment Report on Biodiversity and Ecosystem, Ecosystem Services of the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. So there's reports. Uh, you can Google that, and you can get these sorts of extinction cards. There's also water wars is another way we can go extinct. So most wars in human society have been a result of resource like basically just fighting over resources in one way or another maybe not in the number but the probably in the overall number you know like 
Sure, there were dynastic struggles in Europe and things like that, but by and large, we fight over resources and their availability. Unfortunately, the warming climate causes droughts, melts glaciers, and increases the density of populations in cities that rely on very limited water supplies. This means that states are going to be more likely to fight over water resources. Two specific scenarios. So I've seen laundry list scenarios that even argue that we're going to go to war with Mexico over water in the Rio Grande Valley. It's like a thing that's going to happen. Um, but the two best that I've seen that like really describe what's going to happen are Central Asia War over this disputed region called Nagorno-Karabakh, which is like an OG debate impact. Um, this is a disputed region that relies heavily on the melt of glaciers for its water. It's between Tajikistan and... Tajikistan and um, hold on. Yeah, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Um, there is some evidence that says that that will pull in Russia and China because it's just right there in the region that that'll have spillover effects to a broader Central Asian war that will go nuclear. The other one is I've seen a number of cards that say that India and Pakistan are going to fight over water and that that will go nuclear. So something to know is that India is upstream of Pakistan in some places. So India controls Pakistan's water supply. Because of, like, mountains and stuff, right? It would be weird. You'd think it's weird if you look at a map, right? You think that Pakistan would be downstream or would be upstream of India because it's in the north. But there's a mountain range. That means that rivers flow into Pakistan. They're already fighting over this water access diplomatically. And as India increasingly becomes concerned about... Um, you know, water for its growing population, right? Massive population, cities running out of water. There's a good chance that they will shut off or be tempted to shut off Pakistan's water supply. Both those countries have nuclear weapons. Both those countries have almost gone to war before. Indo-Pak nuclear war is a classic debate impact. You should be able to access it. Um, so... There's also a conflict multiplier here is refugees. So refugees lead to political instability, increased numbers because the people living there just like don't like ref, wherever you are, you don't want refugees coming basically, or at least a certain portion of the population doesn't. So this is going on Germany and other countries, right? So these instabilities and political instabilities make countries more likely to go to war to shore up their popular support. Because, like, I don't know. They have to appease people who are nationalistic and jingoistic some way. So they're more likely to go to war. They're running short of water. You see how this could spiral out of control into resource conflicts. Cards are very good. So would 
be worth checking out. Next is Heat Death. The Heat Death, perhaps my favorite climate change impact. The argument goes something like this. Humans can only survive in temperatures have this written down in wet bulb temperatures of 26 to 27 degrees Celsius. Once we pass a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees Celsius, we cook ourselves. So this is already happening on very hot days in the tri like equatorial regions of the planet. So what is a wet bulb temperature? Says some complicated. It's complicated. I don't quite understand how it works, but here's my best go. So that you take a thermometer, like an old glass thermometer, and you take a sock, and you take the sock, and it's wet, and then you take that sock and you swing it over your head, like twirl it around over your head, until you get a stable temperature reading. And that temperature reading is the wet sock, or the wet bulb, rather, temperature. This simulates the ability of humans to cool themselves off when it's dark outside. Does this make sense to everyone? Probably not so much. Basically, they have ways of simulating our ability to cool ourselves off in a temperature, right? Because your propensity to die in a hot climate is correlated to your ability to cool, your body to cool itself. Because otherwise, you know, we're just like meat, you know? We're no different than like, I don't know, any other animal, more or less. Yeah. But this is only when like people don't have access to water and stuff, right? Because like, I've been outside in 108 yes. degree temperatures well, and not die. Well, Yes and no. At some point, it just won't matter. At some point, the heat will overstep your body's ability to cool itself no matter what. Eventually, you came out of the 180 degree temperature, and, and the scenario is that you can't escape the 180 degree temperature. Your body has an opportunity to cool itself off. For how long? Cool down and I mean, there. I think it's not global, right? Yeah. Well, this no, is the. But you had access to water well, and 108 degrees. So, like, think of it this way. Assuming that people don't have access, right? Well, and, like, 108 degrees is relatively cool. Well, you said 35 degrees Celsius. Celsius. Right, so, 95 degrees Fahrenheit. But that's the wet bulb temperature. So that's with your body cooling function. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was uh, like 2016, 2015 or 2016, where like 2,000 people in Europe dropped dead a week. A week, yeah. A week for an entire summer. Yeah, in like a modern society in Europe, 2,000 people. 
because air conditioning just isn't prevalent. So there's like, and a lot of them were elderly, but they're living in facilities or in homes where there is no cooling. They could not escape the internal temperatures of their building flipped, like the building was no longer retaining any cooling and it became super hot inside. And like people literally died because it was too hot in, in Europe, like in Northern, like regular Europe. Like yeah, people in Chicago die. Like it gets a hundred degrees and 20 people in Chicago will die. Like at a hundred degrees and this is, yeah, James. Yeah, so the TLDR is humans will cook themselves because we don't have access to air conditioning. And even if you have access to air conditioning, you take for granted that you have electricity. You're not going to have electricity in 2050, arguably. There is good evidence to argue that the brownouts that we already see in California, in New York City, are going to be coming to us because of the air can overuse of air conditioning, because of poor transmission, all of these things. So there's mass heat death is a real risk and we're already dying at large rates in the global south. So there's people who say that by 2050, that a good part of the US or of the population or the equatorial population will be unable to live where they do right now. That it will be uninhabitable. And that if we keep on this trajectory, large portions of the earth, if not all of the earth, will be uninhabitable. So, finally, my favorite, my second favorite impact, climate fascism. So this is internal link to collapse of global democracy. So the long story short is that the increased disasters because of climate change will strain government's abilities to adapt and to, you know, take care and recover with populations. These catastrophes and our inability to adapt decreases our faith in government. Furthermore, there will be increases in climate refugees as people flood, as places flood, as they become unlivable, as wars begin, as climate wars begin, right? So the example people argue is the Syrian civil war is amplified by climate change and that that amplification has caused massive migration to Europe and stoking of nationalism and straining of government's ability to deal with it. When people lose faith in their governments to solve problems, they're more likely to vote for strong-arm leaders and fascists. 
So the articles I've seen argue that Trump is the first climate fascist, that he's a presa he presages the broader global trend towards strong men leaders that will act in anti-democratic ways, that will collapse global democracy, lead to genocide, social breakdown, so on and so forth. There's a really good Atlantic article that I would recommend on this. It is... Yeah, it's uh, Newkirk, an 18 article from The Atlantic. Climate change is already damaging American democracy. And this article is excellent in weighing, in weighing out the long-term consequences of the rightward shift in national and international politics in the, this combination. You can get good extinction impacts. You can read the Rummel card. It's like outweighs all other impacts, so on and so forth. You can also get lots of critical impacts off of it, which we'll talk about in a minute. First, I want to talk about civilization collapse. So what's kept me awake over the past like month or so is thinking about what the distinction between human extinction, total human extinction and collapse of human civilization is, and if it matters. So, there's people who argue that it doesn't. That we should take civilization level impacts as arguably being an existential risk, either way, because of the way that consequentialism works, where it's like the collapse of civilization basically destroys our ability for happiness, right? Being, and for utility. Because like being a, being reduced to tribal hunter-gatherer society, it's not good. It might as well be extinction. This is Spratt and Dunlap in 2019. They have a report for the Breakthrough, the Breakthrough Center, or the Breakthrough National Center for Climate Restoration in Australia. And they go in-depth on these kinds of impacts. Three ways we get there. Natural disasters, refugee crises, and food shortages. So first is natural disasters. So climate... So there's various... takes on in different study competing studies on what exactly the impact of natural climate change on natural disasters is all of them tend to say that natural disasters are going to get worse and that that is attributable within a reasonable causal relationship to human to anthropogenic climate change so there's some people who say it decreases the number of storms, but even if the number of hurricanes total is decreased, does it matter if there are does it matter if there are just more category 10 
superstorms or category five or now they're talking about six superstorms. Arguably not. We get disasters in new places like superstorm Sandy and we get intensified worse disasters, which will cause the breakdown of social services, will cause the, you know, end of the electricity grid and our ability to cope with that. That will arguably cause our civilization to collapse. Once we lose electricity in a society that is mostly urbanized, and once roads start washing out, you know, press have to pay respects to human civilization because societies don't function without things like electricity, roads to transport foods to urban areas, so on and so forth. Those are the makings of total civilizational collapse. And they, we can see the, this already in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is probably, is basically the 51st U.S. state, right? It's not officially, but it's a U.S. colony slash territory where that has been widely ignored, where people lost power, where tons of people died, and where civilization collapsed for quite a while because of a massive storm. Once they start piling, once these things start piling up, then, you know, mm, our ability to support large-scale populations is probably done for. Second, uh, refugee crises will probably contribute to this collapse, if not cause it um, explicitly. So humans are increasingly urbanized, not just because of socioeconomic factors, but also because of climate change. As the climate changes, it becomes more difficult to live in non-urban areas. 68% of humans will live in cities very soon. There's a problem, though. In addition to these, like, natural disasters that, like, destroy roads and stuff, is that most of these cities live on the sea, are on the sea, right? New York, Shanghai, London, Toronto, like, even places like Montreal, right? Massive parts of L.A., most of Southeast Asia, are on the ocean or large waterways. So these crises um, will make these cities unlivable, which means in order to adapt, we need to move 68 large portions, not quite 68%, but large portions of human society. If we are to have civilization, we need to move them inland. Uh, unfortunately, that's, eh, that's not going to happen. There's just no way we can do that, right? Especially at the same time that refugee influxes cause social crises because, like, people are jingoistic and nationalistic. Um, there will be unrest, right? Potentially genocide. We're seeing that with the Rohingya right now, right? There's ongoing genocides that we just don't even talk about because of migrating populations and also wars and civil unrest. That's also a way in which, you know, society and civilization will collapse. Finally is food shortages. 
So, two factors mean that we will have nutritional shortages in the coming 100 years. Every degree of warming yields decline 10%. Furthermore, even if it's true that we get some more yield because of carbon in the atmosphere, so this is like a big impact turn, is increased carbon increases food supply because plants like it more. It has an inverse effect and a massive inverse effect on the nutritional value of that food. So corn grown in increased CO2 environments, for instance, has a massive decline in its nutritional value. In a world in which 800, is it 800 million people already have nutritional deficits every day, that means that people are going to starve. That leads to social instability. It's also true that even that it would make sense, like kind of logically, right? That increase when it's warmer out, plants like plants like it to be warmer. So, but we're currently at the optimum in most of the grain-growing parts of the world. So, places like the American Midwest, you know, Central Europe, parts of Asia that grow rice, we're at the temperature optimum for growing there, which means that the one degree increase, so once we hit like the two degree mark, we start seeing massive decreases in the world's bread baskets. And the new areas that it opens up, like supposedly Greenland, is gonna become habitable. Right, supposedly. In parts of Russia, where they used to send you, if you like, I don't know, were too good of an anarchist or like were a social undesirable. Those parts of Russia, like Siberia, right? Like, they're not like good arable land. It takes thousands of years to build good arable soil. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just unrecoverable, more or less, for our food supply. Okay. So, Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess. Maybe so. Uh, we'll talk in the K debate, uh, K lecture tomorrow. Perhaps, perhaps so. Society, society will collapse, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> We'll talk about the ethics of that in the cake. I know. <laughs> it's rough. It feels bad, man. Feels bad. So there's other non-existential impacts, which I encourage you to research, um, that I think are like actual, like real impacts to climate change. And they're mostly ethical. Just like we have a responsibility to future generations to leave a livable earth. So you don't have to get involved in these like technical debates where you know Lafayette rolls up with like climate food malthus or some shit, right? Like you can just be like, we have an obligation to other people or we have an obligation to lesser developed countries, to the global south, who we, by the way, and we'll talk about this tomorrow, who we have shit on, 
for, you know, basically as long as we've uh, Europeans. So me personally, and I'm sure some previous Grunewald in Germany was busy doing a colonialism this time 100, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, right? Have shed on people who are absorbing the worst impacts. There's also like economy impacts. I don't know. People say climate change is going to destroy the economy. That seems like a weird way to get at a climate impact, personally. But, you know, teach their own. It kind of turns itself because in worse economies, the climate actually gets better. Yeah, right. So like DDEV, right? You don't want to open yourself up to a DDEV debate when you're already reading a climate advantage. Um, because, yeah. We'll DDEV. It'll be fun. Um, and so various justice impacts. I'll explain these in depth tomorrow. Yeah, James. Can you title this slide like non-existential impacts? I think like all those previous impacts, like you don't necessarily have to win that they lead to you know, complete extinction. Like you're just like it causes a nuclear war. You don't have to win that nuclear war kills everyone. It can just be really bad. Yeah. Yeah, but we like extinction. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's not like you have to make your impact existential. It could be like, you know, really bad shit happens. Sure. Like, you know, like five, 800 million people dying, a couple billion people dying. Yeah. Pretty bad, that, right? usually bad enough. Like, bad enough to... Or good enough to win a debate, if you will, in my perverse world of impacts where you don't feel anything and you slowly become dead inside. Okay, so let's talk about going neg. So first thing is, and this is my beef with this topic, is that F's no solvo. So most of the literature indicates that we need like bans on carbon consumption in order to stop climate change. Like if your advantage is runaway climate change, then you need to say we need to get to global carbon zero by 2050. <clears throat> Giving some power companies some money to do some renewables or some shit, it's not gonna get you there. This is a particularly true because of the nature of electricity infrastructure and the infrastructure for um, the infrastructure for fossil fuels. So the lifespan of most infrastructure for fossil fuels is somewhere in the 20-year mark. And American exports of liquid natural gas, right, which is the highly pressurized natural gas form, that infrastructure for our exports is expanding in Asia. China and South Korea are opening new LNG ports as we speak to take our exports of natural gas. That means that unless we ban the production of natural gas, globally emissions will continue for at least 20 years and probably will in the United States because most of these, these apps are not going to convince companies to shut down their, in, their climate infrastructure immediately or their carbon infrastructure immediately so like 
most people say carbon pricing is like the only way we can do it. Like a carbon tax or a cap and trade or just like a cap. It's also true that most of these apps don't address things like the military, the transportation sector, or manufacturing, which are all massive polluters. So to give you an idea, the U.S. military is something like the 27th largest polluter. So if it were like a country, it would pollute as much as Portugal. So the AF doesn't deal with any of that. So there's no way they can actually solve. And then there's like the international signaling issues. You can make kind of the China arguments, things along those lines. So I would encourage you to make solvency claims against any warming advantage because this is not a, this is not a restrict topic where you could 100% claim some kind of warming advantage. Now, smart AFs are going to argue that they don't, that you don't necessarily need to solve all of climate change. You just need to prevent it from being catastrophic. But there is a good kind of way, uh, there's a good kind of pathway to argue that the AF doesn't even get to stopping catastrophic impacts. There's also a number of impact defense arguments. So, admittedly, I've been feeding you a lot of really heavy stuff for the last hour and a half or so. Right? We've been talking about human extinction and how humans are destroying the planet for like an hour and a half. There are people who respond to this. Uh, so there's people who argue that civilization won't collapse. There's people who argue that mass migration won't happen or won't have the impacts we say it does. There's people who say we can adapt. Although the evidence that says we are adapting or will adapt is a real bad, just forewarning. So like a good example of this is that the America, in the American Midwest, the entire region of like 15 states, 10, two cities have climate adaptation plans. Two cities out of the, how many ever there are in the Midwest have climate adaptation plans. And note that large portions of the Midwest are going to lose their livelihood over the next 50 years. Because like large portions of those populations not in the cities already rely on like agriculture and meth production. Um, and they're going to lose their... <laughs> and are going to lose their livelihood over the next you know, 50 years. You can also defend that warming will be slow. The IPCC is true. You can also say geoengineering is good. Narrow, narrator voice. It's not. <laughs> but you can say it's, it will solve. That like seeding the oceans with iron or whatever. Or throwing a bunch of tinfoil up in the air. <laughs> Yeah, Boyer loves that. That it will solve and that we'll do it or we should as a counterplan. Um, those things are like not 
guaranteed to work. There's lots of problems with those studies. And um, there's some good evidence that they won't work even so. But, you know, if you want to argue that we should be throwing tinfoil and particulates up into the air for the next, like, 150 years nonstop, solve climate change. You know, I'm not saying I wouldn't vote on that. So, next is my favorite, which is climate denial. I think you can deny climate change and win plenty of ballots this year. Do you remember our talk at the beginning about normal and post-normal science? So here's the thing. Most people are stuck in the normal science paradigm. They think uncertainty means that is not truth, right? That truth is like an absolute thing. That science is like absolute. And the climate deniers exploit this. So take, for example, this thing called ClimateGate. ClimateGate was when a bunch of emails from the East Anglia Climactic Research Unit, which involved also people across the pond like um, Keith Biffra and Michael Mann and also this Gavin someone, he's like one of these NASA scientists. A bunch of their emails were leaked where it aired the dirty laundry of their kind of behind-the-scenes talk as they're co-authoring these papers or reviewing climate denial papers. So like someone would get a climate denial paper from an academic journal to be like a peer review, right? Blind peer review where you review it before it gets published. And then like one of them would like write this email to the other ones, just like I just totally took this guy to town on this. And is just very explicitly like, yeah, this was like, this paper's not getting published. Because it's like climate denial. It's just like not true, right? And they use a bunch of bloggers under the head of ClimateGate, use this, these kinds of emails to show two things. First, that the science and the methods behind climate science aren't as good as we think they are because there's uncertainty and these decisions involved. So think like the debate about the like one or two buoys in like Antarctica. Right, that I was talking about previously, this is where a lot of this comes out. Second, is that the peer review process is political. That the peer review process is corrupt. And that the scientific processes are corrupt because science, senior scientists, you know, get together and are like, these arguments are false. We won't give them a fair hearing. And so they wrote, you know, hundreds of blog posts and then academic journal articles as well critiquing climate science. So you should use this to your advantage. They make a bunch of claims, like the Earth isn't warming for various reasons. First, because there was a supposed pause in the early 2000s in the increase in warming, which was actually just the product of faulty measures, but the F doesn't need to know that. And that's evidence that the Earth isn't warming. And second, that the models are bad. If the models are bad, then maybe this is all natural. Maybe this is not as bad as we say it is. And maybe the trajectories aren't as bad as the F says it is. Maybe the Earth is even cooling. 
Who knows? You can these are these as if you Google climate gate and climate uncertainty, you will come upon a myriad of pieces of evidence. Finally, is negative feedbacks. So this guy here's an example. So negative feedbacks are things that say that as warming happens, there will be things that stop it. The good example of this is Richard Lindzen is obsessed with clouds. So this guy, every five years after his last theory about why clouds prevent climate change um, gets disproven, he publishes another one. So you can find all of these if you just Google for them. And lastly, warming is good. I'll just leave this up here. But there are plenty of impact terms to climate change. It's like it wants to prevent an ice age. We need to get warmer. Otherwise, we'll have another ice age. Uh, CO2 increases food production. New habitable areas will be farmable and will be good, and we can go live there. And also, just like the U.S. will come out on top. So this is, to me, like the, little, the Peter Littlefinger or Peter Baelish theory of climate change, that chaos is a ladder. So it's like we have the biggest, baddest military. So the U.S. will be able to keep its population in line by putting tanks in the streets. And we'll be able to stop all wars and major power wars because we have the baddest military. And it will weaken everyone else worse because we have the most money. And also it will, we'll be able to drill for oil in the Arctic, which will sustain our economy. I mean, you know, if you feel like being a terrible person, um, or it's you're, not it's not right, <laughs> or, you know, if you're just dead inside like me and have transcended the good evil binary, uh, then, you know, this might be a way to go. Questions? Discussion? The Ice Age argument, though, relies on winning that it would be survivable, that humans would survive. Like, yes. Like, the Ice Age will kill us. We have to postpone it, but yeah, we're making ourselves hotter, and that's more survivable than the ice age. Yes, and that claim is very hard to win because we've empirically already survived ice ages. That we have. You got to win that. It'll be so. Like, there's uh, various debates about the cycles of ice ages, yeah, and yeah. some are like worse than others. No, there's like parts that are like we're like a hundred years past when the ice age should have happened, right? Because of the Earth's wobble. Like when yes. That is apparent. That is apparently false, but yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah but people read those parents all the time. Or used to, all they the still do. I'm pretty sure that yeah, yeah. Um, how does the Brink argument play out here? So like the argument that we're past the Right. That it's already baked in. Right. Yeah. I mean, that can be a good neg argument. I think that there's cards that say that. We're not past the irreversible of the worst effects. So if you're F, you want to argue that some effects of climate change are inevitable and happening now. That's how we know it's true. But that we can avoid like total civilizational collapse, human extinction, if we take action now. So like, yeah, it's going to be bad, but bad isn't, you know. Even if we have an ice age, you still have hydroelectric just water. Yeah, that's a <laughs> Yeah, but good thing about water. Uh, <laughs> water is just I'll, I'll just let that. <laughs> oh, 
water. It's frozen water. Yeah, James. Pass the point of no return is relevant too for weighing the rest of your attacks. So right. If you have offense on the negative that's not like climate attacks or like biologic extinction impacts, uh, winning past the point of no return means that you can leverage your geopolitics impacts because their existential right. impacts are inevitable because it's big. So it's super relevant for those arguments. Like it's anytime you hear a climate impact and you have fire evidence on past the point of no return, which you should because it's true. Um, right. Like those, that card is very good for you to read and debate. Yeah, I was just gonna say, like, if you know, if you're like, let's say, affirmative, and you're including those cards about like tipping points and you know stuff like that, some bad moves. And you want you want to make sure that they're not too good that you're overwhelming your own solvency. Yeah, a lot of the people who say the IPCC forgot feedback loops are then simultaneously like. The unknown unknowns are the reason we need to act now because even if we pass a few of them, it doesn't mean we're donezo. It just means it's bad. What about SO2 screw? Yeah, so the decrease in carbon leads to unchecked SO2, right? That's the well, argument. So the way I've always heard it explained is, is that burning fossil fuels puts both sulfur and carbon in the atmosphere. Right. But carbon's half-life in the atmosphere is way higher than sulfur's. But sulfur is a cooling agent. It's reflective of heat and sunlight. And so the sulfur, if you stopped climate emissions tomorrow, like stopped all emissions tomorrow, carbon would stay there for 20 more years, but sulfur would dissipate in the atmosphere in two years. And run away. Supercharge right. the warming effect of the remaining carbon that hasn't like fallen out yet. So if we were to achieve the like zero carbon emissions by 2050 kind of thing, if you do that too fast, you increase the rate of warming because sulfur falls out of the atmosphere, the carbon remains intensifying the heating because sulfur's reflective properties are now gone, which is like yeah. the growth of climate change now. Yeah, uh, I seem to remember those cards were like, when I was reading them, were like mid early to mid 90s yeah. we're already like 20 years I'm old. just saying this is a thing people will say they are yeah you need to be prepared for SO2 screw um, it's a lie so just find a card that says it's a lie it's not like I explained it it sounded smart when I explained yeah, it yeah I mean it sounded you definitely spin it in a way that's like oh sulfur maybe is reflected I get that yeah. we take that out of the equation the carbon would be more dangerous yeah I mean it's a serious argument um, yeah, I mean, when we're in the, like, impact turn, internal link turn debates, it's probably actually the best of the, of, of those, because, yeah. Yeah, it's very strategic, it just happens to be not very true. I mean, it right? could be true, we don't actually know, because we haven't ever achieved, like, right. we're in zero in, carbon, but, like. We're in an era of scientific uncertainty. Yeah, there you yeah. Go. Could be true, do you going to take that risk, do accelerate warming with your plan? I remember there would be arguments where people would like do zero carbon emissions, but as a component of that, artificially continue to supply sulfur to the atmosphere until levels like leveled out. So it's like do the plan and put sulfur in the atmosphere so that we we solve SO two screw and your planet text. Sounds extratropical. No, it was like the counter plan. But how is that mutually exclusive? That's a different debate. 
Yeah. It is. It definitely is. Uh, oh yeah, the funding. So the funding debate cuts both ways, according to the climate deniers. So most of the funding, most of the climate deniers are bought and paid for under the table by fossil fuel companies, right? Most of the people who deny climate are climate change are. Um, are like engineers, right? Of course they are. Um, because, and they don't know anything about the climate, but they can run some statistical models. <coughs> and they work for think tanks or speak places that are explicitly connected to fossil fuel money. So they saw this was a problem. So then they made it a point of... Um, writing whenever possible about the grant money that scientists get and argue that if scientists didn't disprove climate change then they would never get any grant money so they have to write that it's true now arguably the motivation cuts the other way michael mann points this out very effectively in a, one of his recent books that if you were a scientist who could disprove climate change and get it published in the journal climate change climatic change like the journal or nature climate change then yeah you would you would not just roll in the money you would be like tenured like you would get all the possible potential you would max out and become overpowered academic yeah, basically too, right Right, you would make massive amounts of money. Uh, but unfortunately... Climate change exists, so that's not possible. Yeah, so we say. 